Good evening. It's good to uh, be with you once again. And if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 18, but tonight we'll basically be beginning with verses 20 and 21, and then kind of be moving on from there. So let's pray, and we'll get busy. Father, as always, we are grateful. You are so kind to us, and Father, we really do want to understand your word. We, we want the Father to have a better understanding of you, of our salvation, of the life that we are to live. So, Father, we ask that you bless our time tonight as we continue our study in Romans. As always, Father, we're grateful for your presence and for uh, your willingness to teach us your word and your patience with us as we strive to live for you in the way that we ought to. So, again, we thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 18, but again, remember that as verses 20 and 21 is where we're going to be picking up our study. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, uh, beginning in verse 20, as we mentioned, uh, the word trespass or the word transgression, depending on what translation you have, is literally, or means literally, a falling aside. It describes a deviation from living according to what has been revealed as the right way to live. It conveys the idea of a false step, and so that's why it's translated either trespass or transgression. To transgress in English means to go beyond or to overstep a limit or to go beyond a boundary. Uh, there's a subtle distinction between the word sin and transgression, which is used for sin, but it's emphasizing something different, or, or the nuance is different. So the idea behind trespass is that we have crossed a line, that we are challenging God's boundaries. The idea behind sin is that we've missed the mark, God's standard that calls for perfection every time. So again, the subtle distinction is that with a transgression or a trespass, we've crossed the line. And as I mentioned, we may be challenging the boundary that God has set. So verse uh, 20 also says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. All right, so the law came in to increase as we overstep the bounds that God has set. What does he mean the law came into? Well, uh, the phrase there, the law came in, came in means alongside or to enter. It means to come into uh, near or with something so as to be present beside it. Sometimes this word can indicate that something has slipped in unnoticed. Here it simply means the law is not something that is fundamental to salvation. It's not essential. So we want to make sure that we're always clear on that. As we kind of work our way through the teaching of Paul, Paul wants to make sure that we clearly understand, once again, justification and what it is and what it is not, meaning what is salvation, what does it mean to be saved, how does one become a Christian, how does one get saved, and also making sure we understand sanctification, the process by which the Spirit of God works in us, in those of us who are believers, in making us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So back then to the law, 
coming alongside uh, and increasing the transgression in our lives. Galatians says, Is the law then contrary to God, to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So as we go through our discussion tonight, I just want to make sure we, we keep clear that we're never saying or hinting that the law has something to do with our salvation, either the obedience of the law or that type of thing. So again, in Romans 5.20, then the law of Moses entered in beside something already in existence, which is what? That men were sinners. Men were sinners long before the law of Moses was given, and God had begun to implement the plan of salvation before the law was given. So the law really is, the written law really is a, it's not a side issue, but again, it's a separate issue. It, it coincides with what's going on and reveals uh, the truth and the wisdom of God, but it's not a part of God's plan of actually saving individuals. So the purpose then of the law's entrance into the world was not to redeem men. Only Christ could do that. So we want to remember that. When God gave the law, he never gave it saying, here is the way of salvation. He, he never did that. That was never the intent. The purpose of the law's entrance into the world was not to make men sinful, because man already was sinful. Paul already explained in verses 12 through 14 that man is guilty of Adam's sin, and we, we went through a great deal of detail about that. Uh, specifically those sins committed from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So the law was given that sin might be made more evident. In other words, the sin that was already there, this existence we already have, where we possess a sin nature, God gave the law so that it might be more evident to us that that's our condition. So it amplifies a statement that Paul gave in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Where he says, For I works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And again, remember that when he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin, he's not saying that we didn't know what sin was until the law came in. But it is true that we did not know all of the specifics of sin. In other words, uh, Paul says in another place that he would not know what covetousness is. So he, he might have had a sense that to take life was wrong and to steal is wrong or to take something that doesn't belong to you. But the idea of covetousness, you know, desiring and wanting what someone else possesses, he says it wouldn't have occurred to him that that was wrong except that the law of God, it was written down and explained to Paul that that was God's standard and therefore Paul was guilty of that or we are guilty of that. In Romans 5.20 then, the word increased here means to cause, to increase, or it suggests an abundance. There's an old commentary, and it says this, The offense is multiplied because the law, encountering the flesh, evokes its natural antagonism to God, and so stimulates it into disobedience. As the offense multiplied, the need of redemption and the sense of that need were intensified. So there's this idea that we're going to see uh, not only presented, but kind of expanded on in the book of Romans is that mankind, the human being, in his natural state, which is, again, remember we have a sin nature, we have a natural bent to do wrong, a natural propensity to go in the wrong direction. It's, it's, 
easy and natural force to rebel against God? That when a human being in that condition, which is all human beings, when we come in contact with the law of God, which is righteous and which is holy and which is good, that interaction then tends to cause us to uh, become more intensified in our rebellion against God. It's not the fault of the law. It's because of the of the working of the principle of sin in our life. Uh, and so we actually end up sinning more. And then that then intensifies the idea that, man, I really need Christ. Sometimes for an, for an act, for, I'll give you kind of an explanation of how that works. You know, all illustrations break down eventually, but the idea would be this. So let's say that growing up, uh, when you went to school and you were in elementary school, let's say the third grade, uh, you were the fastest kid in your class. And not only were you the fastest kid in your class, you were the fastest kid in third grade. And then in fourth grade, you were the fastest kid in class, and you were the fastest kid in fourth grade. And let's say it was always that way until you went to middle school. Now, when you went to middle school, which normally happens is, is there's more than one elementary school that feeds students into a middle school. So now there's, there's some new kids that you've never competed against. And let's say there's a kid there that is really fast. So you thought you were fast until you raced against this new kid. Then you realized not only how maybe average you were, but perhaps how slow you really were. So his presence didn't make you slower. It's just his speed revealed that your speed was really not all that quick. Uh, and it revealed the deficit that was in your running compared to him, compared to somebody who was, let's say, really fast. So the idea then of the individual, the average individual, the average human being who has a sin nature comes in contact with the law. The law is so far above us, so holy and so good that it reveals within us how far we are from the standard. So just like the kid in school, he, it's revealed to him how far he is from really being fast. So sin entered the world. The law entered into the situation which already existed. Uh, it, was, it, it, created, it was created as an accessory. Uh, it does not have the decisive significance in history which the objective power of sin has. In other words, the law didn't come along and do anything extraordinary. Uh, again, it wasn't a way of salvation, so it wasn't that it was tried and, and it failed. Uh, it was just to reveal what already was there, put a spotlight on it, uh, or a magnifying glass on it. So again, remember, again, that men were already sinners and already in need of salvation. So again, the Mosaic Law is not flawed. Its presence caused man's sin to increase. Thus, it made men more aware of their own sinfulness and inability to keep God's perfect standard. Uh, and it served as a tutor to drive them to Christ. Now again, man in his rebellion at times is so rebellious to God that even though the law causes me to become more aware of my sinfulness, I might live in denial. I might even rebel against that and somehow try to find a way to blame God for what's wrong with me or what's wrong with the world. So there's all kinds of ways that an individual can respond to that. But the law of God is going to accomplish what God sent it to accomplish. And that is to reveal our own sinfulness 
and our absolute inability to keep God's law or to keep his standard. Remember that uh, the law, the law of Moses, the 613 commands, and those commands help us to understand what is entailed in the one standard of God. The standard of God is a perfect holiness in both behavior outward and inwardly in the spirit of man. And so this this law then revealed that my own my sinfulness and my inability and then also it was teaching me something. It was a tutor. It was guiding me to the Messiah, to Christ. Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So let me read that to you from the Amplified. So that the law served to, and, and again he's writing to primarily to Jews, so that the law served to us Jews as our trainer, our guardian, our guide to Christ, to lead us until Christ came that we might be justified, declared righteous, put in right standing with God by and through faith. So that was the purpose of the law. It was a, it was a teacher to the Jews uh, that they needed to um, look to their Messiah, that they needed to look to their Messiah who was going to save them. So again, the law is good, the law is holy, the law is righteous, because it ultimately shows man his need for a Savior. You see, sin, the principle of sin is so blinding that even though a man, I guess you would say, is aware that he's doing wrong, he, he still may not really see that he needs to be saved from his condition. And so the law comes along and helps to reveal that, helps to reveal to our dull mind or to our blinded eyes how, how much our need is for Christ. So that, that helps us to understand a little bit as to how we are to present the gospel of Christ to others. You know, the longer that we are believers and we are more removed from the condition that we were in before we became saved, we sometimes can become confused. We sometimes can think that somehow uh, we have a better way to reveal Christ to non-believers. And sometimes what happens is, is the idea is we want to make the gospel more palatable, to make it more easy to swallow. And so we might skip the part about the fact that Man is separated from God by his own rebellion, by his own sin. Remember that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to those who believe. Part of the message of the gospel is that man is separated. That it's not just that man needs to be, needs Christ to find meaning, though we do. It is not just that we need Christ so we can find happiness, though we do. That alone is not, a drive, is not enough to drive a man to, uh, to Christ. And we'll see that in, in a little while later, later this evening. But the idea is, is they need to recognize that, that without Christ, they are lost. There's no hope for any of those things, much less forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So again, the law is good, holy, and righteous because it ultimately shows man his need for a Savior. So then the question is, well, then what is the law for? And Gleason Archer said this in his uh, book on the New Testament. He says, The necessary yardstick of God's holiness which served to bring into sharp relief the guilt of man in revolt against God, showing him the hopelessness of attempting to earn salvation by good works. So, the idea, again, is we need to be made aware of our hopelessness. It's, it's not enough that we just kind of have a, or give a passing nod to the fact that, yeah, yeah, I've, I mess up every now and then. Yeah, I make some mistakes. That is not the message that the Bible wants to get across to us. 
the message wants to get, get across to us is that uh, it's not that we're going to be condemned. We're already condemned. It is not that if we continue on, on the track that we're on, we're going to commit sins that were separated from God, but that we're already separated from God. It is not that if we don't change direction, we'll never get on the right path to get to God, because we'll never get on that path to God on our own. That's an impossibility. Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite authors, favorite Christians of the past, was answering a question once, and the question that was posed to him was, if he had only 60 minutes to speak to a man about his need for Christ, at the end of that 60 minutes, that man was going to die. Uh, he was asked, how would he spend his time? What would he, what would he say to the man? How would he divide up his spiel that he would give to the individual? And Francis Schaeffer said that he would spend the first 45 minutes talking about the man's sinfulness and his need for Christ. And in the last 15 minutes, explaining what Christ has done. And the reason why that, that Schaefer said that was he said, it's not a, enough for a man to know that he's at the end of his rope. He needs to realize that he's already lost his grip on the rope. It's not enough for the man to realize that he's come close to the edge and he may fall into a deep pit, but that he's already falling. Thus is the, the hopeless state of that man. And so that's what we need to remember as well. Whether we think that works or not, that was normally how, that's how we came to Christ. That's how we understood the gospel. And that is what the Spirit of God is going to use to convict the world of their need of Jesus Christ. So again, verse 20 in the Amplified of Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But then, but then law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But where sin increased and abounded, grace, which is God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. So you can see the contrast clearly there that Paul is showing, but again, he is explaining clearly as to why the law uh, has come in. So moving on, Douglas Moo, uh, who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, says this, The fact and power of sin introduced into the world by Adam has not been decreased by the law, but it's been given a new dimension. As rebellion against the revealed, detailed will of God, sin has become transgression. So again, what he's just trying to, to show us there is that so man is not just, in a sense, sinned against his conscience or sinned in general, but that there's a new dimension to the rebellion because the idea may be, someone may say, well, wait a minute now. Now, I know I've done wrong, but if, but if I had the law of God, if God had told me what was right and wrong, if he wrote, had written it down for me, then, then I would have followed that. I would have understood and I would have obeyed. Well, God did write it down. He gave it to a very religious, devout group of people. And what did they do? They couldn't keep it. First of all, there were those who, many of them, those who basically just purposely went against what the law said. They went against what they knew to be true. And then even those who were striving to keep the law failed as well. And so that's what's meant by that. So as we look back at what Paul is stating here in verse 20, we see again that the law was not given to justify man. It was not given to save man. Also, the law was not given to condemn man because, again, man was condemned before the law came. Uh, again, we were all condemned by Adam's sin. So how does the law increase sin? So three things. First of all, 
First, the law increases our actual knowledge of sin. Remember Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, or by the law is the knowledge of specific sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but nonetheless, Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. So the law defines sin for us. Also remember the point that we made earlier concerning the difference between sin and transgression. We sin, yes. And now that sin has been defined, I am guilty of overstepping the boundary set by God. Secondly, the law gives us an understanding and knowledge of the nature of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So here, again, we're being taught the depth of sin, its foulness, and really its real nature. Romans 7, 5 says, For when we were in the flesh, meaning before we were saved, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work, and our members to bear fruit to death. So let me just briefly say this. We'll probably come back to this again, most definitely as we get into chapter 7. But when he says that in our unsafe state, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So now we learn another dimension to how uh, the natural man, the man with a sin nature, the natural tendency to rebel against God, God gives to this man a perfect, righteous, understandable law and measure of what is right and what is wrong. And when this sinful man sees that, it arouses his desire to commit sin. Uh, a very simple way to illustrate that, many of you have heard me use it before, uh, but it's still true. And that is, and, and everybody has an experience, this is, as we've said all illustrations break down at some point. But we get the general idea. So the general idea here is this. I'm a kid, 12 years old, whatever it is. It's Christmas time. My mom says that she's going to be baking cookies all day. And she says to me, I'm making these for some people at the church. No cookies. Stay away. I'm making cookies for us tomorrow. This batch is for someone else. Well, as my mother cooks the cookies, not only can I smell them, they might even smell better than usual because she's told me not to touch and not to eat them. I, my interest in them is piqued. I, I am more desirous of them. The temptation to take one is even greater. Uh, I may walk back and forth looking into the kitchen to see if she's there. I may look at the platter of cookies that are already done and wonder if she'll miss one. I mean, there's so many there. If I take just one, she may not notice. You know, that kind of idea. So the idea there, again, is that, that uh, and this is with many different things in life, that when we're told not to do something, sometimes the reaction to that commandment, which may be right and good, is a stronger desire 
to go against what's said. So again, until the law came, man in general did not really understand sin and how terrible it was. Now, man understood the terribleness of, let's say, murder. He may have understood the terribleness of betrayal. Not, not all men, but in general, they may have. But the law explains to us how bad sin really is. We are aware that we do wrong, but we, I would say this, even today, we are aware that we, that we do wrong, but we, a lot of times, kind of pass it off as regrettable, as something to learn from. You, you may hear a man who, let's say a man has, has been married, let's say it's usually it's someone famous, you know, it seems that we always care about that. So someone famous, some celebrity, is married, been married for many years, and let's say they get caught having an affair. And his wife is angry, she's upset, she divorces him. So a couple years goes by, and he's being interviewed, some talk show. And he says, well, I really regret what I did. I, I realize that it was wrong, and so I just kind of chalk it up as something to learn from. Well, I, maybe he doesn't quite grasp how devastating his sin was. I mean, he clearly doesn't understand that his sin was against God first, as well as against his wife. But that is how we sometimes look at all of our sin. We are guilty of that uh, most of the time. We like to think that, I guess in our natural state, we're kind of morally neutral. Uh, that when we're tempted and when we give in the temptation, we may admit that we've committed an act of sin. Again, we might say we're sorry. We might ask for forgiveness. We may even express some kind of sorrow. Uh, and then we're free again. And we're maybe morally neutral. You know, I'm not, I'm not against God. I'm not for God. I'm not immoral. Uh, I'm not perfectly moral. I'm just, you know, just kind of neutral. And I'm just living my life. I'm not hurting anybody. That's how a lot of people view themselves. Especially, I would say, in Western cultures. A lot of us view ourselves. It's not limited to Western cultures. It's probably something throughout the world. But the main point that we need to make here today is make sure that, that we as individuals don't have that kind of attitude. So this reveals, though, if we kind of have that attitude that, yeah, you know, I've, I've done wrong and I regret it, you know, but I said I was sorry and, you know, I just kind of learned from it and move on. Um, it reveals a couple of problems. A couple of problems. And number one, it reveals that we, we often do this. We take sin lightly. We, we don't take all sin lightly, but we do take sin lightly. There are many sins that we, we don't really see it as being that bad. Part of that's because we compare it to the worst sins we can think of. You know, you hear people say all the time, well, you know, I know I did wrong, but I didn't murder anyone. I mean, I know I did wrong, but it's not like I was selling drugs to kids or, you know, whatever the case may happen to be. So we don't really believe that all of our sin produces and bears fruit to death. We don't really believe that. Secondly, it reveals that we are pretty much unaware uh, that the reason why we sin in the first place is because we're a slave to sin. That's what the Bible says. Every single non-believer is a slave to sin. He sins because he's a servant of sin. He is uh, enslaved to sin. So we need to remember that knowledge of sin has never prevented anybody from sinning. Just the fact that someone knows something is wrong never prevents anybody from sinning. It might, in a few cases, prevent a few people on a couple of occasions. But in general, that's the truth. And even for the individual who might stop committing a certain act of sin because they, because they know it's wrong, 
doesn't mean they're going to stop all acts of sin because they know that it's wrong. Because that's pretty rare. It just doesn't really happen. In fact, normally, again, the more we know about sin, the more we are subject to being tempted. So again, remember the question, how does the law increase sin? First, it increases our actual knowledge of sin. Secondly, the law gives us an understanding and knowledge of the nature of sin. And that leads us to the third thing, which is really the terrible grip which sin has on the human heart. Sin is not just a matter of doing wrong things. Sin has twisted our entire nature. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or thought about this, but I know that in my life there's been times where a thought has run through my head and it makes you wonder, where did that come from? That is so twisted. That is so wrong. Um, maybe uh, maybe you, you come across somebody and uh, you just don't like them. Maybe they've done something to you, but something minor. And they didn't seem sorry. They, they acted like they didn't care. Maybe they acted like they were better than us. It could be a lot of things. And, you know, we just kind of go on about our business, kind of shrug it off. And then we have this thing in our head, you know, where all of a sudden it's, it's like we imagine us having the ability to kill that person. Yeah. Like, where did that come from? You'd be surprised how many people have that thought. Not the thought where they actually plan out how they would kill someone. A fleeting thought where somehow they're just responsible for that person's death. Like, oh yeah, I'll show you. Boom, and we pull the trigger. Or we, or whatever it happens to be. Or maybe just rejoice that something happens where, let's say the individual does something to us and we're kind of upset. We, we think that we're over it. And then also we just have a thought that the individual walks out, let's say, out of the store and they get hit by a car and they die. And at least in our fleeting thought, it's like, yeah, well, they deserve that. Don't mess with me. I mean, people have thoughts like that all the time. Where does that come from? Eh, it's, a, it's a sin nature. And it really twists us up on the inside. So a sub-point to this really is the deceitfulness of sin. We, we often underestimate either the power of sin, we underestimate the reach of sin, and I think we underestimate how deceitful sin is. Sin doesn't always appear to be as bad as, it, bad as it is. Romans chapter 7, verse 11, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Back to the illustration of my mom telling me not to touch the cookies she's making uh, because they're for someone else. She'll make cookies for me and others the next day. Where do I get this idea that well, if I take one cookie, she won't miss it. Therefore, it's not really wrong. Now, it's not that I'm actually thinking as a 12-year-old, this is not wrong. But the idea is, is that I really minimize it in my mind. She has, there's so many on the platter, she really won't miss it. I know, I don't even think about this idea that it was my mom that asked me not to do something. It doesn't even cross my mind that I'm going to have to lie to my mom or deceive my mom, my parents. My mom was going to be making me cookies the next day. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go against this. I'm going to betray her trust uh, in me and whatever else you can add to that. And so I'm deceived. I, I've deceived myself into convincing myself that it's not a big deal when it is a big deal. So taking those three things together, we we should ask certain questions, which is, what place does God take in my life? Uh, do I ever really think about God? How do I think about God? 
Does an individual live their lives because uh, of God and for God and, and for His glory or not? Now, all those things are, are, are expected of all people. It's not just believers. Believers are the only ones who can are the only ones who can do that because we have Christ living in us and we've been forgiven. But everyone's expected to do that. Again, remember Romans chapter uh, one verse eighteen: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, that's the state uh, of everyone. So what happens is, is God is ignored. Uh, we tend to be self-satisfied, self-contained, good, moral people. We believe that we are ready to stand in the presence of God. In fact, our lives reveal that deep down inside, God did not even need to send us son to die because we don't really see our need of a crucified and risen Savior. That's not just true of certain sinners who are arrogant. It's true of many, many people. We really don't think we're that bad. And again, primarily, not only, but primarily, we don't think they're that bad because we haven't killed anyone. We're not a pedophile. We don't sell drugs. We don't beat people up. We don't steal. Uh, we only tell small lies. Um, we do our best never to hurt someone's feelings. You know, that kind of stuff. And so as we look around, as we hear stories of of criminals, as we hear stories of, of atrocities that take place throughout the world, we see so many examples of those who who carry out these these acts that are just atrocious. And we're convinced that, ah, I'm not like that. That's, and that's because we haven't done exactly what they've done. But just because we haven't done exactly what they've done doesn't mean that we're not like them. They do what they do because it comes from a heart that's rebelling against God. And we do what we do because it comes from a heart that's rebelling against God. What's the difference? It's a difference by degree, but it's the same thing. Because God does say that sin deserves death. He didn't say only murderers and drug dealers deserve death. He says all of us do. So all of these things that we've been talking about, it's important for several reasons. And again, I kind of mentioned this earlier, and we're going to come back to it. If we preach the gospel, now when we say they preach the gospel, remember that that's for all believers. Uh, the word preach normally just means to declare. So if I say you need to preach the gospel, that doesn't mean you need to get up behind a pulpit or stand on a soapbox and start yelling at people. That's, that's not the idea there. It's simply to declare, uh, to, to tell. So if you declare the gospel or you speak the gospel in terms of, you know, as you talk to the unbeliever, you say, are you in trouble? Are you having difficulty? You know, is your, is your marriage going bad? Are you having a hard time at work? Are you unhappy? Are you depressed? You should come to Christ. And, and, there, and that's, a, that's a faulty way of delivering the gospel. Why? Well, what are you going to do? Let's say you're talking to an individual and you ask those, maybe you ask those questions and they say, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I'm not really in any trouble. They don't need a savior. Based on what you just said, you're telling them that eh, if you're if you're having trouble or, or if you're kind of depressed or sad or unhappy, you know, Christ is the answer. And so they're thinking, well, I'm not in trouble and I'm not unhappy, so I don't need Christ. So we've really messed that up if, if that's kind of the approach that we take. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with adding that on to other things, but that's not where we begin. So again, if they believe, and many people believe this, if they believe that they are moral, not perfect, but generally moral, if they believe that they are good family people, if they're respectable, they just don't ever think in terms of needing a Savior. Now, now, let me give you a, a reminder of something that's really important with this. Because when we start thinking about this, sometimes we begin to wonder, well, how am I going to get them to understand how dreadful they are? I mean, I mean, I don't want to call them names. I don't want to accuse them of things that I don't know if they've done them or not. How, how do I help the individual to, to recognize that they're not moral and that they're not respectable and they do need a Savior? Well, the good news is, is that's not your job. It's not my job. It's not my job. It's not your job to make someone feel guilty. It's not our job to help them to, 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 to convince them that they're in need of a Savior. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. We do present the truth without compromise. So we do talk about sin. We do talk about the law of God. We do that. But I don't have to say it in a harsh way. I don't have to yell at them. I don't have to try to make them feel guilty. I don't have to try to find a way to, to trigger their emotions so they begin to feel guilty uh, about the way they're living their life. I, I just have to tell them the truth. What, what does the Word say? Let the Holy Spirit do that. Uh, many times, uh, if, you, if you listen to a good testimony, or perhaps if we have a chance to ask people this, uh, about when they came to understand they need Christ, uh, you don't really hear people say, well, I was talking to so-and-so, man, they were reaming me out. They were yelling at me and telling me how filthy I am and how vulgar I am. And after a while, with all that yelling, I just felt so guilty that I just had to come to Jesus. That, that, that doesn't really happen. Yet, at the same time, people will say, well, I just came to understand that I needed Christ. I, I, was, I was worse than I thought. And it could be that you know, the individual can realize that their that they're lying or their betrayal was bad. And and then there were the consequences of all of those things. It doesn't really matter. The idea is, is that it's not your job or my job to do that. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. And and that is I'm so grateful for that. So again, we want to make sure that we're careful that we don't pre present the gospel beginning with that individual's needs or the, I would say their felt needs. We don't want to do that. Or to their weaknesses or to their fears. No, we just want to begin with the fact that God requires perfection. That is God's standard. That's not an arrogant thing to say. Because we're not pretending that, that we meet that standard, that we're perfect. We're fully aware as we've gone through all the details of justification that I am dressed in the righteousness of someone else, which is Jesus Christ. And so that is... That is why I'm able to stand before God. I stand before God as one who was always unable to meet his standard. But I am there by his grace, by his goodness. And so I want that individual to understand that God's requirement is perfection. That it was always perfection. It's not just, oh, now I've informed you from this point on, you need to live perfectly. It's already too late. From the time you were born, God's standard was already there. He already demanded that you live according to the law. I mean, in a sense, if you think about it, when, when a child is born in this country, the law of the United States is already applicable to them. The law already says, 
you can't commit murder. Now we know that an 18 month old isn't gonna commit murder, but we know a six year old can. A six year old can cause death. A 12 year old can do that. Why is it that we have some 16 year olds who are tried as adults? Some 15 year olds that are tried as adults? Because we do try to find excuses at times for the wrong people do. Maybe it was an accident, maybe they weren't fully aware, and there's some truth to that. But we, there are times that we lower that, you know, even though we say, well, you become an adult, at 18, an adult at age 18, in this case, it becomes clear that at 16, they knew. At 15, they knew. Or at 14, they knew. And I do think there's been a few times where even a 12-year-old has been tried as an adult. I'm not positive, I think, that, that may have happened in our country over the past you know, 30 years. But the bottom line is, is the law has always been applicable. No one says to someone who's 18, well, now the law applies to you and, and you can't murder anyone. I know you were murdering people when you were 16, but now you gotta stop. Because, see, that doesn't make any sense. Well, same thing when it comes to the law of God. The law of God has always been applicable to every human being, even before someone informed them that it was. Again, remember Romans chapter one, all men know that God exists. All men know that God hates unrighteousness and ungodliness. All men know that God should be worshipped and that we should be thankful and that God is powerful. They know those things. All right, They know it intuitively. It's, it's placed there by God himself. Mark chapter 12, beginning of verse 28, it's what Jesus said. Then one of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we can boil, we can do what Jesus did. All the law and prophets hang on those two things. So ask an individual, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If the answer is no, you're condemned. You have rebelled against God. God is our creator. He's not just some supreme being who's, who's casually connected to us. We owe him our very existence. And then he says that... Uh, we need to love our neighbors ourselves. Other human beings who are all also created in the image of God. He says, you love yourself. You love them like you love yourself. Have you done that? All of us, I think, well, many of us can think of individuals that we have had it in for. Maybe individuals that we teased to the point of tears when we were little kids. We teased another little kid till they cried. Maybe you bullied somebody for a while. Maybe you stole something from someone. Maybe you lied about somebody just to get them in trouble. You know, that kind of thing. So arguments back then as to the greatest sin, you know, because there were those who were argued. They would say, well, it's murder. Others say, no, it's adultery. Uh, but it was always something that man, that man did. Jesus has an answer that throws the emphasis onto something else. Actions don't come first. The first thing is our relationship to God and our attitude towards God. That's, that's the sin he's talking about. So, so an individual may not be guilty of murder, of adultery, and all the rest. But what about his relationship to God? How has he been relating to God? Well, he, he hasn't been. He's been ignoring God. Well, that's, that's sinful. Again, Romans 1, what does it say? That even though man should be thankful, he wasn't thankful. 
And then man tried to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. So the question again we have to ask ourselves, that we should be asking others, is what is your attitude towards God? And what is your relationship towards God? That there is, is alone is enough to condemn all men and for men to realize that, that they're in trouble. They may not like it, but most of the time the non-believer isn't going to like the truth. So verse 21 now, Rome, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Romans 5, 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the word reigned, when he says, and that so that sin, so that as sin reigned in death. Reign means to rule as a king. It has an implication of complete authority and right to control in an absolute manner. It speaks of the dominating quality of really the sin nature, uh, of the sin nature in the unregenerate man and the unregenerate woman. So we're dealing with the principle of sin or the sin nature. It rules in our lives. It is the, it is the dominating quality uh, of who we are as people. It, it controls us uh, in that way. Again, the sin, again, the tendency we inherit from Adam that makes us want to commit sins, it's personified. And it refers to a nature, the totally depraved nature of the unsaved person that's still in Adam. This sin reigns as an absolute monarch in his being. And so again, for all non-believers, sin is king. We need, we need to remember that. But then he says, even so, remember there's always these contrasts that Paul's been going through. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness. So what's he talking about there? When he says grace reigns through righteousness, many people have the idea that where grace reigns, there will be a disregard for righteousness um, and a casual attitude towards sin. Remember there's, there's this idea or fear that some people have, and I think sometimes they're well-meaning, that if we emphasize grace too much in the life of the Christian, that somehow we won't care about holiness. And that when it comes to sin, that it'd be kind of like cavalier. Well, uh, then that's not the reign of grace. Now, I'm not saying that we'll never be tempted in that direction. I'm not saying that we may not even sin in that direction, but we won't remain that way. If a person remains in a state where they have a disregard for the righteousness of God, or they remain in a state that, they're, that they have a casual attitude towards sin, uh, that's a pretty good indication that they don't know Christ. Uh, because he, here he talks about gra grace reigning through righteousness. So Paul, Paul wrote another letter uh, where he was talking about grace and what grace teaches us. This would be in Titus chapter 2. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now that, if you think about this and what we're talking about for just a moment. So Paul talks about grace reigning through righteousness. So when I become a believer, before I became a believer, Sin was reigning in my life. It was it was king. I become a believer. God's grace reigns in my life. God's goodness reigns in my life. And this goodness of God teaches me that I should um, move away from ungodliness. That that God matters. Um, 
that I should move away from worldly lust that doesn't lead to righteousness, that I should live soberly so I, I'm not living under the control of other substances, you know, whether it's marijuana, alcohol, or other kinds of drugs, and that we should live righteously, and that we should live godly. That kind of covers everything. So grace reigns through righteousness, and grace teaches righteousness. So grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. What does he mean by that? Grace reigns to eternal life. God's grace gives us something, and it takes us somewhere. It gives more than just everlasting life in the sense that it will never end. Eternal life has the idea of a present quality of life. So God's quality of life given to us now, not something when we die. So we would then say that we have now eternal life. It's not just a promise that we're going to live forever. It, that's part of it. But eternal life, and we want to make sure that we always remember this, always includes the quality of this eternal life. It, it, because it's definitely not an eternal life of sin. It's eternal life. I'm in this eternal relationship with Christ. In this eternal relationship with Christ, I desire to pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness and all the rest. And so God's grace is, is taking me in that direction. It's giving me eternal life and taking me there. And then, of course, it says grace reigns through Jesus. There is a king in the kingdom where grace reigns, and the king is Jesus. And you hear people talk about King Jesus, and we sing songs about King Jesus. Uh, I do think it's important that we remember this, that we never speak of Jesus being the president. Okay, He's never voted in. Uh, he never is someone who has limited power like a president does. Uh, it's not a parliament. Um, it is a king. We would say a benevolent king, a king who loves us, a king who's gracious, kind, fair, righteous, all those things. But a king, a king is absolutely sovereign. A king has a say over every aspect of life. It's hard for us living in America to really grasp that because we've never lived in that kind of a setup. Uh, but when, when kings ruled the earth, it was understood in all cultures and, you know, they vary differently from culture to culture. But in all cultures, the king's word was final. And the king was always considered to be sovereign over the law and over people, over the land. So, for example, if, if I was the king of Georgia and you have a house on the water, and I like your house and I like that location, and so I say, I'm going to take it. Now, in our country, we would say, well, that's wrong. You can't have it. It belongs to me. I own it. Um, no one has a right to come in and just take it from you. And all that would be correct. But if I was the king and this was a true monarch, you would be. You could say that, but you'd be wrong. But that's my land. And I want it. So it would never be viewed as stealing. Now, there may be those who would say that it was morally wrong for me to do that. It may be morally wrong not to give me what it's worth. If I'm a benevolent king, I, I'm, I wouldn't take it. If I'm a benevolent king, I would at least maybe give you what it's worth. But the idea, again, is that I'm only taking... that, that The idea with the king or a monarch is that I'm only taking what belongs to me. If I then give an order, if the king was to give an order say, stating that all males who are of age must join the army today because we're going to war. 
and whatever that means, or whether I'm talking about people who are 18 or 16 or whatever, uh, no one's voting on that. That, that, that doesn't, have, doesn't go before a Congress to see, or a Senate to see what they would say. It's just declared. You may not like it. You may even try to defy it and hide your son. But the king is sovereign. He has not done anything wrong. Your son has to join. That's the idea. So Jesus is a king. He's absolutely sovereign. Thank goodness he's benevolent, kind, and he's already proved that by giving his life for us. So a life of grace, then, is all about Jesus. It's all about others. It's never about me. A life of grace doesn't look to the self because it understands that this undeserved favor of God is given apart from any reason in, in myself. All the reasons are in Jesus. None of the reasons are in me. So grace doesn't reign through self, but through Jesus. So this raises some questions. Paul's going to raise those questions. Because Paul wants to make sure that he adequately explains and answers in advance questions and problems that people will have with the message that he's bringing or that he's explaining or with the gospel. Uh, and so, in fact, Romans is so good at that. Paul is so good at what he does. At one time in our country, many schools, I don't know how many, but many universities or law schools uh, law students were required to read and study the book of Romans to study the art of persuasion, to study the art of argumentation. You know, Paul will make a declaration and then he will back it up with facts. And then he'll back up, he'll change his angle and state it again, and then bring a new set of proofs, so to speak. Then he'll back up again and dissect it, and then come at another angle and do it again. And so that's, that's what he's doing in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And it reads this way. What shall we say then? In other words, to all that I've told you, what shall we say to that? How should we respond to that? And then he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So again, keep, in, keep the context of Romans in mind as we go through chapter 6, 7, and 8. Uh, in the previous three chapters... Paul has been focusing on the crucial need for justification by faith. Again, that's the past tense, completed act of salvation. He's now beginning the practical section on sanctification, uh, the present tense salvation. Again, remember that there is an aspect of sanctification that we might be able to include in our position of being justified. That as God looks at us, we are in, in essence already sanctified, already set apart by God, and that's true. But there is a practical aspect of sanctification. And that is, even though I've been declared righteous by God, I don't live righteously. I, I'm not like Christ. And I'm still in the flesh. And as a result of that, there are many weaknesses and problems that I have. And so the Spirit of God who lives in me is now working in me to help me to become more like Jesus Christ. And so that's, when we're talking about sanctification, that's the present tense aspect of salvation. So we would say this, 
So from God's declaring the believing sinner righteous to demonstrating the practical ramifications of salvation on those who have been justified, Paul now specifically discusses the doctrine of sanctification, which again is God's producing actual righteousness in the believer. So God is going to produce actual righteousness in you and me. This righteousness that he produces does not keep me saved. I'm saved by his grace. It doesn't make me more savable. I'm already saved. This is not a process where I'm going to get to a point where I can be saved because, again, I'm already saved. But this is now God working in me to produce in me actual righteousness as God lives his life through me, as God lives his life through you. Kenneth Wiest, uh, there's a, a, a set of books called Wiest Word Studies. Uh, they're very, very good. Um, I cut my teeth on those when it came to more in-depth reading on the Bible. And he says this, So Paul proposes the question, What shall we say then? Say then to what? Well, we go back to 520 for our answer, which we find in the Apostle's statement, where sin abounded, their grace was in superabundance, and then, on, and then some on top of that. So Paul's teaching is that no matter how much sin is committed, there are always unlimited resources of grace in the great heart of God by which to extend mercy to the sinning individual. The objector's thought then is as follows. Paul, do you mean to tell me that God is willing to forgive a person's sins as often as he commits them? In response, Paul does say yes. So the legalist says, well, wait a minute then. If that's the case, we should, we should keep sinning as Christians. We should sin habitually in order that God may have an opportunity to forgive us and display his grace. That's the background to, uh, of this man's reasoning. And, there would, and Paul knew that there would be those who would actually think that. Uh, next time we get together, we're going to talk about uh, that actually being promoted uh, within some Christian circles. It's been done in the past, and yeah, there's some places where it's done now in the minds of some individuals and small groups. So we're going to begin to dissect uh, that aspect of it. So we're going to stop there. And I would encourage you to reread chapter 5 and then to read chapter 6 of Romans. Uh, and then we'll get into verses 1 through 4 and begin to dissect what Paul is saying. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so grateful. We thank you again, Father, for your word and uh, again for the precision of your word and also for Paul's effort to help us to really understand uh, what you've done for us. Helping us to understand that, again, you are so good and that we can have absolute confidence that we belong to you because of the goodness and the strength of Christ. Father, we ask that you would uh, cause us to think about these things throughout the week. That, Father, we may continue to grow in our understanding of who you are. As always, we thank you. We thank you for your word. And we do ask these things in Christ's name.